0: Welcome to the Player Development Project podcast. My name is Dave Wright, co-founder and editor of Player Development Project. PDP is a website for coaches who are committed to learning, and we provide a huge library of resources which consists of cutting-edge insights from the world's most innovative player developers, coach educators, and researchers. If you want to learn from the best and join a community of like-minded coaches, then check out playerdevelopmentproject.com. Hi everyone, welcome to another Player Development Project Monthly Wrap. My name is Dave Wright, and as usual, I'm joined by PDP Technical Advisor Dan Wright. Dan, how are you?
1: I'm very well, thank you. I've been enjoying the July sunshine here in the UK, it's <laughs> been crazy hot. I've heard how the
0: rumours, I've heard the rumours. It's pretty chilly down here in Melbourne. Uh, it's, it's sort of insane that it's nothing like January in London, so I'm kind of celebrating that fact. But uh, looking forward to another conversation to review all of our monthly content, and July was exceptionally busy, uh, particularly with the production of Issue 19 of PDP Magazine, which was really exciting, sort of edging towards the milestone of 20 editions, which is something I'm looking forward to achieving with the PDP team. So we're going to kick things off uh, to start with Drew Sherman. Now, Drew is a pro-licensed coach. He's the Academy Director at A-League Club Brisbane Raw, and he's been in the role now for around a year and a half, I believe, and has launched a program from scratch. So let's hear from Drew. And in terms of the philosophy, as you say, you've had a lot of time and I think we all dream of being in the position of starting from a blank canvas. It's a fantastic opportunity. So what is the philosophy of the club in terms of play development and how do you ensure local talent is going to get an opportunity in terms of going on to play for the first team?
2: Yeah, I think um, uh, the club philosophy really is is one. Um, of course, that youth development is a, a big element of the club's wider business plan you know there isn't an economy of player sales here in australia yeah. at the moment but i think that that has to happen um if if uh, the ffa are saying that all the daily clubs need to have academies then yeah. then we need governance to protect our investment yeah uh, which is one of the biggest challenges um so for long term that's definitely the the club's the club's approach the club's belief um we we have been quite fortunate actually in the in the sort of 12 12 months of having the youth team up and running and um, now just 11 weeks of the, the full academy program. In that period we've had, um, I think 11, we're at 11 now, 11 first team debutants right. uh, having progressed through from the youth team. Um, the perception here in in Australia is that we have a, an aging squad, which is true. Mm. Um, I think we've been nicknamed Dad's Army by a couple <laughs> of the media. Um, but one of the advantages with that is that you have experience again in your first team squad to mentor and bring through those young players. Yeah. From a head coach perspective, John uh, John Lewis is enormously supportive of providing opportunity for young players. You know, actually, he sees it as a wider responsibility than just being a head coach to give something back mm-hmm. uh, to developing Australian players. You know, and and thanks to the opportunities that he had, um, so he's he's massively, massively. Um, supportive of promoting players. He's Mm. present at Academy Games, comes down to Academy training sessions, um, and has even taken some of our young Academy players into the dressing room before A-League Games and had them there for the halftime talks. So, um, you know, his his influences it reaches all the way down to our to our under 13s, um, and it's just remarkable that we have that type of support. You know, I think that's the, the biggest challenge is always Uh, What's the level of opportunity at first-team? If you have somebody that supports that, Mm. then academy director is an easy job.
0: So Dan, another really interesting discussion there. Obviously, Drew giving some insight into the challenges uh, of setting up the program and, and the Australian landscape. What were some of the key takeaways from that masterclass for you?
1: Yeah, I think Drew's in a really nice position where like he said, he's got that blank piece of paper. So he's almost starting from scratch with a whole Um, youth development pathway. So this clip, he talked about the pathway, uh, you know, the pathway to pro. So from kind of teenagers all the way into first team and and that kind of um, influence that the first team manager has all the way through, which was really nice. There was a few other bits around the Australian culture which you're probably better to talk about than me.
0: Yeah, certainly been a bit of an eye opener since I come down here uh, end of last year, and I think, you know, it's very early days for the academies uh, in Australia. It's been sort of passed down by FFA that the A League clubs should implement academies, and now there's sort of a ranking system around that, Um, and I think you know, there's there's sort of finding their way. And I think Drew's put a really nice program in place, which has removed the pay-to-play element. Um, and pay-to-play, similar to the US, is an issue here where, you know, clubs do charge a lot of money and it does isolate talent. Um, so by creating a model which is viable and sustainable um it sort of removes that barrier to talent coming in so it's been really interesting to chat to him um, both in the interview and at other times as well about what the landscape looks like for him Um, and certainly very early days in terms of the way the a League clubs are feeling out the academy process so it's a bit of watch this space really
1: yeah and and also interesting because drew's got experience of you know academy football here Mm. and the whole kind of emergence of e triple p so maybe the landscape will change a few times in Australia. Maybe, you know, if you look at English football, they went from um, national centres to clubs doing their own thing for a while, Mm. like the whole Howard Wilkinson influence, and then now academy football and and lots of processes and and, and more jobs. So, yeah, it might be interesting to to reflect back in 10 years. Drew might be someone that shapes the whole landscape for the whole country. I don't know.
0: Yeah, certainly doing good things up there. Uh, And that takes us to our next content, which was, really really enjoyable in terms of putting it together and uh, that was PDP Magazine issue 19. So Um, We sort of reviewed the World Cup, um, but we also focused on some of the narratives outside of just the technical tactical. Um, So Dan, do you want to cover off uh, two or three of the articles? You wrote one about VAR and technology in football. Um, We had a really interesting piece from our assistant editor, John Hoggard, on cheating and diving, which was a real problem um, that most of us saw at the World Cup. And of course, Jimmy Vaughan went pretty interesting with his angle around Argentina and, and a cultural reflection. So what's your summary of those?
1: Yeah, um, this was my first kind of um, experience of VAR. So I'd mm-hmm. seen a few clips, you know, online of, of it being used in the A-League and a few um, Italian Cup competitions as well. Um, and initially I thought VAR was really good. Like there was there was a few examples where, you know, they reviewed it and they got it right. Um, but then there was a few inconsistencies <laughs> and... Um, although yeah. I didn't mind who won the final. I was spitting feathers in the final. I thought the yeah. final was, I thought that decision was um, ridiculous. And, yeah. I, and I think um, there was a yeah. lot of, there, there was lots of interesting things. I could talk about VR for an hour, so you might have <laughs> to might have to uh, wind me in. But um, I just thought the human nature of having to go over to a TV screen where a group of people had told you that you need to review this, so you've already got doubt in your mind. And then there's 90,000 people watching you make <laughs> a decision with, you know, Eleven pros screaming in your ear. It, 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 it's a system that I like because I want the team that deserves to win to win. Um, but it was there was parts of it that were subjective. Like mm. I, I like the offside bits. I realise I'm ranting now. No, like no, go offside, for it, mate. Bit. I like the offsides because offside was black and white. You're either onside or you're offside. Similar to the kind of development of goal line technology. I think that's been good in the Premier League. Like yeah. no one doubts the ball has crossed the line. You know, it's in or it's not in. But penalties were just subjective. Like, yeah. th- there are things that you watch and you go, "That's a pen," "That's not a pen," and then the sum in the middle, and you go, "Well, could mm. be given a pen, might be." And, and um, I'd, I'm not sure how you can quantify what is a penalty. I think we're going yeah. to get really in detail with our descriptors of, you know, people saying, "Well, there's contact." Well, that isn't in, in the rules. Mm. Um, you th- know, getting the ball first. It It was. It was a. It was a real. Um, it was a real storm. Yeah, go on. Yeah, I think,
0: I think uh, a good example here, I am a crazy rugby league fan. It's a sport I've grown up watching and loving, and I watch a lot of it now, particularly now that I'm back down in Australia, and they've got huge issues. And they have a bunker, which is kind of similar to the VAR, off-site, and they've got huge issues happening where the referees are almost lacking confidence to make decisions. And this video technology has been used in the NRL now for probably 15 to 20 years um, in terms of replays around tri-scoring moments. And you're right, that lack of black or white and that lack of kind of, or that subjective Ah, element, yeah, yeah, sometimes there's interpretation involved, means that decisions get made wrong and they cost teams games and they cost coaches their jobs. And I think there are moments where we're letting technology remove the human element from sport. And sometimes we've just got to accept that the human element will be wrong because players are sometimes wrong and they make mistakes and coaches do the same thing. So it's very interesting, but uh, it was a fascinating thing to see it at the highest level without a doubt.
1: Yeah, I also wondered for a while whether it's just part of the game. Like when when you go, you finish the match and at the highest level, you know, if you're a spectator, you get in your car and in the UK you put 606 on or <laughs> chat, there's chats on Twitter that you go to the pub and have a chat with your mate. If everything is like no one disagrees on anything, yeah. then the game's going to be quite boring. And I, and I wonder whether like, you know, that one nil that you sneak and in the last minute someone you know does a tackle they shouldn't or someone scores a goal that they shouldn't you know we we do we want to eliminate cheating but i also think that's part of the game maybe the the dark arts of um even like set plays mm. so like maybe teams you know the italian teams of yesteryear pulling shirts or you know zonal marking and holding people in certain <laughs> ways is that completely disappearing i think like harry maguire and people that can run and jump and head the ball are they going to become more vague because yeah. no one's going to stop um yeah. Like I said, I could go on for hours, but there you know. Yeah, well, look, uh, as a
0: Kiwi, I can certainly remember Daniel De Rossi diving in the 2010 World Cup to cost us a potential win over Italy. So that was New Zealand's, you know, it was New Zealand's moment. So I'm just going to throw that in there. But go on to cheating because it's a nice segue towards it.
1: Yeah, I, I think this is something you're super passionate about. Yeah. That, um and I think the two are kind of married, aren't they? The VAR and the cheating. Because if we're going to get um, more zoomed in and more focused on offsides and goal line technology and reviewing penalties, I think we're going to have to review diving. Mm-hmm. Um, the Premier League have talked about doing it for years, you know, retrospective action of um, yellow cards, red cards, missing games. And they've never really done it. Like the, the, the referees are more confident to use a yellow card. But some of the play acting in the um, World Cup was... It was it was a joke, wasn't it? It was, yeah. it was embarrassing. Um, and and um, I actually thought it was probably the worst I've seen for a while. I thought it was worse than the Premier League, worse than the Champions League. Um, mm. What was your take on that?
0: Look, I think um, John's angle in the article was really about the influence on young people. And we saw the memes and the videos of young kids taking the mickey with coaches, getting them to all dive at once and do the Neymar role. And I thought that was pretty comical. But I think there is an underlying message here that there are certain teams and certain cultures that value that trickery, deception, or beating the man, whatever it is, more so um, than playing the game the best they could. And I look at Neymar's performance and I think, well, this was an opportunity for him to create a legacy of the quality and the legend that could be Neymar. But instead he spent, I think it was 14 minutes laying on the floor (laughs) through the tournament. And I also think Griezmann dived to get a penalty. So this goes back to the winner, sorry, to get a free kick in the final. And this goes back to the win at all cost mentality are you willing to dive and cheat to get a penalty to win a tournament and is that just part of the game or should we try and rise above it and clean up the game because I know a lot of people that don't watch football and when they talk about football they just go all they do is dive and roll around and it's embarrassing and it's hard to defend or argue with that as a football fan so it's a very interesting debate.
1: Yeah the, the not to go off piece but the Neymar angle is quite interesting because you know I think he's probably the third in line behind Messi and Ronaldo and mm. That's a whole other podcast. We're going to debate that, <laughs> but but lots of people were focusing on Neymar's diving, play acting, trying to win penalties. When there's some really good stuff online written about how well he actually played. Like statistically, he was carrying the ball, he was creating chances, yeah. um, he he was amongst the best attacking players in the tournament. But I don't think that people saw that because of you know the kind of the, the lens they were watching him through. So you know you look at maybe someone like Hazard, who had a brilliant World Cup as well, um, beating players and, and carrying Belgium forward. Probably a similar level of performance to Neymar but Neymar's um, theatrics and and, uh, drama meant that perhaps people didn't value what what he did so much. Um, Just moving on to, to the rest of the magazine, which other articles did you want to cover?
0: Well, look, I think John Alder's piece, uh, which was a follow-up from a couple of issues ago around values and culture and just the promise of thinking culturally was really interesting and highly recommend John's work. Um, He is a real guru when it comes to leadership and culture. There is a masterclass with him on the website. He's written a number of articles for us. And it's just a really interesting look at the importance of values and culture around teams. So a really nice article there. And it kind of taps into some of these themes which rose up through the World Cup, which is why we published it in this edition um jimmy vaughan's article do you want to sort of cover that one off in terms of the argentinian angle
1: yeah i think um jimmy's someone that's really interested in how culture influences the game and Mm. how you know linking into what we were talking about with, with cheating what we value to be true then starts to come out in into the football and so he talked about how argentina used to value um kind of skill and creativity and and um I suppose, football things, and now they only value hard work and they talked a lot about having balls, didn't they? Um, And and how um, that kind of affected the the team's performance and the team's cohesion. Does, Does that sum it up well enough?
0: Yeah, I think a good example from sort of environments I've seen is when coaches who perhaps... Uh, maybe lack experience or maybe lack genuine knowledge in an environment will just go intensity 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 like it's all about intensity oh it wasn't intense enough or the players weren't working hard enough well that's great to a point like we can all be intense but you can play football slowly i mean the italians traditionally play a beautiful sort of slow methodical game the spanish obviously keep the ball and build the english game might be quicker so it varies culture to culture but you know i think it's it's just about looking at it and going what what do we value to be true and Um, Again, I I often reference Jimmy Vaughan's article in issue nine of the magazine around Catch Me If You Can, where it talks about the Brazilian case study, because it's such a good example of, um, you know, the sort of cultural influences that shape the way the game is played in the form of trickery and what weight you put on putting the ball through a player's legs versus what weight you put on scoring a goal. That may vary uh, in different cultures. So a really nice piece from Jim and, uh, and certainly one to consider when we think about the kind of values and messages we promote in our immediate coaching environments.
1: Yeah, and then the the final one was was your article with Zaheer, um, which I, I really enjoyed. I really like this format. Um, Zahir, obviously, someone that we've both worked with, uh, mm. first team analysis at uh, Brentford, Um, but just kind of going through some of the tactical trends of the World Cup. Do you want to touch on this one?
0: Yeah, look, I think it was just a devil's advocate piece. So obviously I I thoroughly believe that players should be taught to keep possession and play attractive football and try and play through the thirds. And I guess the the sort of message I was citing was that most academies or most clubs will have a philosophy where we play through the thirds, we try and keep possession, we press high. And that's sort of been a common theme tied back to the trends in the game for the last 15 to 20 years. And I think looking at the World Cup and the analysis that I asked Zaheer to help me with was really around providing some effective clips around the importance of transition and speed in the game. So the article was called High Speed Chess, and it's all about the influence of really positive transition, whether that's the attacking transition or defensive, um, and how that we need to encourage young players to experience those things and make sure that at training, we're giving them an opportunity not just to keep the ball for the sake of keeping it, but to actually keep it to penetrate or to work on counterattacking quickly or reacting quickly on transition, whether that's a pressing high, counter pressing, whenever we lose the ball whatever that is it's just about that variety and Zahir was able to support I guess the themes that I was trying to get across with some great clips and some good analysis there
1: yeah I really enjoyed that one like I said I think it's a format we should uh, we should look to use again so moving on we've got a research review mm-hmm. um You introduce this one and then I'll I'll kind of point out the bits that I like to think.
0: Yes, it was a really nice one from uh, Professor Bill Harper, who obviously does all of our research reviews on practice instruction and skill acquisition in soccer. And I guess Bill was sort of uh, taking it and and breaking down some of the key points, but there was a a sort of nice part in the middle of the article around five key myths um, that go with coaching, and, and you and I can both talk about one of them. But myth one, for example, that demonstrations are always effective in conveying instructions to the learner. So there's always a lot of debate around learning styles, teaching styles, and whether they're true, whether they're not. But I think. If I think back to certain courses I've done over the last 16, 17 years, it would be that you stop the play, you demonstrate, you check understanding, and then the ball rolls. And that would be a very traditional method of instruction and in coaching. And there's a lot of evidence in this paper to kind of debunk that myth. And I think from experience, you could say that you know, coaching interventions on the run, uh, conversations with players while the game's going on. Maybe sometimes stop, stand still is relevant. Um, But just making sure that there's not really a one-size-fits-all approach was that kind of myth. And then the one that you were going to address around game intelligence, Uh, what were your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, so mine was myth five. Uh, Game intelligence skills are not amenable to practice and instruction. Mm. So I think there's a common belief that um, game intelligence maybe is something you have or you don't have. Or maybe game intelligence is something you learn through playing the game. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this myth talked about uh, perhaps using different interventions. So it could be video. It could be a coach telling a player. It could be a coach asking a player to watch another player and how that can build game intelligence or can Mm. build understanding or tactical understanding. Um, So I quite enjoyed that one because I think um, maybe in the UK, like you've, you've talked about the traditional coaching formula that was stop, stand still, and it was command style and rehearsal then perhaps we went um the game is the teacher and we we, we went two games based and the reality is that all of these things are useful and that, and that seesaw of of practice and, and play um mm. you know they're all useful and all those intervention stars and all those practice different types of sessions are all useful yeah. so i quite enjoyed this this paper i would recommend people have a look
0: Definitely. Pretty challenging. And that sort of takes us over to the session plan. And this was one I put together, uh, very much inspired by a former colleague of mine, and he used to call it Cheating Wingers, a great counterattacking session, which I renamed Lazy Wingers because I had uh, Jimmy Vaughan's sort of voice in my head thinking, rename this so that we take the word cheating out of it and make it something a little bit different.
1: You can't bang on about Neymar and then call it cheating. No, exactly
0: right. He would have battered me on that one. So anyway, (laughs) Lazy Wingers was the the name for the PDP session plan library, but essentially uh, a session designed to give wingers and and attacking players lots of opportunity to counterattack and break forward. Um, by just simply stationing them in certain areas of the pitch and then working with them individually. And I actually ran this practice a couple of weeks ago when we were working on uh, transition with my group, and it went down brilliantly. We did it in a 9v9, and the practice really can work from probably 6v6 to 11v11. So very adaptable and a great way to get lots of forward attacking runs, lots of attacking underloaded, which is generally fairly realistic in the game. I don't think there's too many times we attack overloaded. Um, it's more often underloaded. So it's a really nice practice one to check out um, and, and I'd recommend using when you are working on counter-attack.
1: Yeah, I like the session plans because a lot of them are adaptable. Mm. Um, I tend to look at them and then not copy them. I tend, they tend to be like a nice um, foundation to go and come with a new idea. So it's not so much taking the session plan and, and you know sticking it on your players. It's, okay, I like this idea of, defending overloaded or you know, attacking underloaded or whatever, and then how you're going to run that with your group. So like you said, they can work 9v9, it could work 11v11, and most of them go all the way down to kind of uh, five and six aside, don't they? So it's, it's a nice kind of banker sessions there.
0: Absolutely.
1: Um, so just to wrap up the wrap, uh, we <laughs> need to talk about your blog, uh, Change the Story.
0: Yeah, look, this was one that kind of um, was inspired from a book I'm reading at the moment called Sapiens, uh, a brief history of humankind. And it's, um, I guess, about evolution. Um, And it was inspired when there's a sort of Part early in the book that talks about the agricultural and prior to that, the cognitive revolution and how Homo sapiens essentially became the dominant life force on earth. Um, And one of the key reasons for that cited by the author was the ability to tell stories. And it sort of talks about many examples of myths and stories that are passed down from generation to generation. So that inspired me to sort of examine how does that apply to coaching? How does that apply to sport? And of course, there's so many different myths and stories, whether that's win at all costs as a narrative and and coaches telling players what to do and to knock the ball long. And then I happened to go and watch a game where that was happening. So it all kind of was a perfect storm in terms of inspiring the article. But the basic premise is that I think we have to question Dominant narratives in sport all the time. Now, whether that's the masculine paradigm, whether that is the win at all costs story or that narrative that dominates youth development far too often, and it's still a problem, um, whether that is the way we coach in terms of our behavior. So do I have to verbally impose myself because I'm wearing a tracksuit and I need to be seen by the parents standing over there that I'm the coach and I'm the boss and I'm in charge? Or am I confident enough to go, look, we've done the work during the week and now I'm going to give the players some ownership and, and just questioning things, so it was really just to to challenge people about the story that you're passing on to your players and that you know their experience as children in your environment.
1: yeah, I think back to one of the q and a's you did about like what is coaching mm. um, and we talked about maybe the attributes of a good coach or or, or a modern coach uh, and we talked about kind of staying curious and, and understanding the why I think. That that can be one of the the kind of the best advices to to young coaches. Kind yeah. of so, you know, if that if that narrative is always there, or if it's the culture of the club or the culture of the game, why? Mm. Um, and you've got to understand for yourself whether that's true or whether people just believe for it to be true. Exactly. I think those are the the bits that i find interesting
0: yeah definitely just got to keep questioning things keep challenging uh, traditions and norms and and social constructs it's a healthy healthy attitude in my personal opinion so dan that sums up a very busy month of content in july Um, published a lot of a lot of stuff in there and particularly with the magazine thank you very much for your time in reviewing it no worries mate all right we'll look forward to another pdp monthly wrap very soon Thanks for joining us on the Player Development Project podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at PlayerDP or find us on Facebook. Don't forget to head over to playerdevelopmentproject.com where you can sign up to our progressive coaching community and gain access to our wide variety of resources to help you in your coaching.